Well, hello, Crossing Church. How are you doing today? Doing all right? Good to see you. Good to see you that you survived yesterday and the previous week. God is good. He's good in so many ways. And I want to share one of those ways that God is good. Uh, 23 plus years ago, uh, the Crossing went into debt. And officially today, we are a church that is completely out of debt. Isn't that awesome? Praise God for that. Absolutely amazing that we can, uh, we can declare that uh, today. But our greatest debt was settled 2,000 years ago, wasn't it? And ever since then, we don't have to worry about the debt of sin that we owe because that debt has been paid by Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for that. I'm thankful to be able to welcome all of our campuses today from all across this region. And for everyone that is inside and online, we are so thankful for each and every one of you that we can connect together today, uh, this beautiful day. And uh, if you were at any of our Christmas Eve services, you heard that coming up next week is a new series, There Has to Be a Place. And uh, I'm so thankful that we can be a church that can be that place and that God can do incredible, wonderful, mighty things uh, through the collected efforts of His followers and lovers of Jesus all through this region. So I want you to be a part of that sermon series coming up. There has to be a place. Now, I'm a pastor, and I've been a pastor for 42 years, but uh, people that really know me well know that somewhere deep inside me, there's an architect trying to get out. Uh, and Because I, I love buildings, and I love the design of buildings, and I love how you can express creativity through buildings. And so, uh, as far as the crossing is concerned, there isn't a choice of a location, a design, a remodel that I haven't been all the way involved in because I just have this love. I have this love for architecture. It's just so satisfying uh, to me. And each of our locations is, has a unique nature about it. You know, there's none of them that look alike, none of them that look even close to the same. And if you go to all of our locations, you'll see that. And some of them have right, like, like really especially uh, interesting uh, architecture, and it, it's a reflection of a of a deeper truth. One that comes to mind is Hannibal. Hey, everybody in Hannibal, they're all screaming right now. And uh, uh, I remember when I first went into the theater in Hannibal, it had this overpowering smell of mildew. Uh, it had been abandoned for uh, a long time. Uh, there was no electricity on or water on. Uh, a lot of the plaster had fallen. Uh, it, it was just it was just horrible. But there was something about it, something so nostalgic about it. And I fell in love with that. I remember going to the elders saying, this is not a logical decision. This is emotional. I would really like to make this the location of uh, the crossing in Hannibal. And they went along with it. And uh, the, the, the illustration of Hannibal is powerful because what you see is something that was originally built, took four years to build it, and it was a, to be the jewel of that, of that community in Hannibal. And then the years and, and life, and just, it just turned it into a ruin. And then it was so cool to go in there and completely redo it back to its original glory. And those of you that are sitting in that, in that room now, you can just see it, that 44-foot high ceiling. It's just beautiful. It's incredible. 
is a testimony to what God can do in a human life. Because our lives can end up looking like that. Like, like God gave us a great life to start out with, and then it was just all that stuff happened, and we become a ruin, and then God has this ability to reconstruct us. And now that building is, is a jewel in that community. And it's interesting, on Broadway, other uh, businesses and locations are all trying to beautify theirs to keep up with ours. And that's, that, that's the beauty of how that can actually happen in the kingdom of God. I love the 929 location, this 1874 shotgun building that was uh, built by German-speaking Lutherans who wanted to have a, a church building in, uh, that where the services were conducted in German in their language. And I can't imagine what those immigrants put together in order to, to be able to build that building. And now to be able from heaven to look down and to hear the praises of people singing and lifting uh, the name of Jesus up in that building, that, that's great. And every single location has a story like that. And I love that. And I want to. And I'm I'm preaching from 48th Street, which is our our first location. And I want to share a little story about it and the architecture of it, because those of you that have been going to the 48th Street location, you know this that there were so many walls and rooms and stuff. Like if you used to walk in here, how many of you actually got lost trying to find it where to go at the 48th Street location? Raise your hand if you got lost in here. Yeah, like where did we park? How do we get around? Like, I don't even under, you know. And it was just nuts, right? The way it was, originally, it was an elementary school designed for the open learning concept. And then that concept was shelved. And then it was the community college. And then we got it. Well, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I had a friend come from Southern California, Mel McGowan, who was a Disney Imagineer. And uh, we sat down to figure out how could we reimagine the space and he wanted the blueprints. He walked around the outside and we got the blueprints out and we rolled them out. And, uh, you know, it's such a confusing building at the time and I, that was bothering me. And he looks down at the prince. He looks at me. He looks down at the prince. He goes, what's the name of this church? And I go, it's the crossing. He goes, crossing. Like, come on, Mel, you know the name of the church. He looks down at the prince again. He looks up. He looks down. He looks up like he's trying to get me to look down. I look down at the prints, and suddenly it hits me that at, it, you could only see it on the blueprints, but all of those walls and all of those hallways were non-supporting, which means you could take them all out. And, 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 and he looks at it, and he looks at me, and he goes, do you see how everything centers around that center place? Those of you at 48th Street know that there's that green space that's out there, and that's actually a, a cross. That actually, there, there's there's... It comes together there. You can look all the way east to west. You can look all the way north south, right? And uh, he goes, crossing. Look at that. You took all the... And I'm like, oh, this is so cool. I go, ah, that kind of gets ruined, though, because we built this big tool shed on, the, on, on it, which is where those of us at 48th Street are sitting right now. And I go, that kind of ruins that whole crossing thing. He goes, really? You worship at the foot of the cross? And I was done. That was it. I go, oh yeah, we got to do this. And, and now you go out there and you look and it's all open. And the thing is, no matter where you park, you walk in, you know exactly where you are. Right? And I love that. I absolutely love that. You, you see, we, there, that structure was there all along. We just needed to clear away all the unnecessary walls. 
And this is what I think. I think in your life, same thing needs to happen. It's all right there. You just need to let God clear away all the unnecessary walls. And things are going to change, right? Now, I, I told you I love architecture. Well, one of those goals, those, those bucket list things I wanted to do was I always wanted to design and build my own house. How many of you ever had that idea or that goal that you want to design and build your own house? So 26 years ago, I got to do that. Before I moved to Quincy, three years before I moved, I literally drew up this house on graph paper and pencil. This is how I want to make it look. I had, I had bought land, and I wanted to build this house. And I started to go to uh, sales and uh, pick up things like interior things that I wanted for it, and I had a place to store those. And uh, then I hired contractors, and I acted as the general contractor that could do everything that I couldn't do, which was a lot. But I did install the plumbing. I installed the wiring. I installed the uh, HVAC, uh, did a lot of that. And I actually was the one who laid the foundation of, of that house. And it had a basement. It was ten, like a 10-foot basement. And uh, so we dug down uh, deep, and I had someone do that. And then a friend of mine, Ray, and I actually laid out the foundation. That was a big deal to me. And so we used two-by-twelves and uh, two feet wide. had a big, wide foundation. And, you know, that, that foundation had to be perfectly plumb, had to be perfectly level, because any mistake in that foundation was going to ruin anything that rested on it, right? It had to be just right. And I remember being so proud when I took the forms off and I saw that we had done such a good job on that foundation, even though it was all going to be buried and nobody would ever see it. I knew that that foundation was a sure foundation. You know, in ancient times, before concrete had been invented, foundations were set with stone rather than with concrete. And the very first stone, the cornerstone, was the most important stone in that foundation because the rest of the foundation was based on that single stone. And if it wasn't right, the whole construction would be wrong. And the tools that they used to make foundations in ancient times, plumb and level, they've been around for over 4,000 years. We use many of those tools today. Have you heard of plumb bobs? How many of you know what a plumb bob is? Raise your hand. Yeah, there's a lot of you that do. It's just a weight that comes down off of a string and it makes sure that you're right with the earth and gravity, right? Or chalk lines. You ever used a chalk line or a square, right? You, all, you builders all know that. You all have those. But they've been around since the pyramids and even before. So, but, and all of that is designed so that every part of the building actually becomes a reflection of that very first stone that you lay, that cornerstone. Now, last week, uh, when we were preaching behind the curtain, I spoke about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem uh, the week of his passion, the week that he died. And I told you about the song that they sang. It was called the Hallel, Right? as he goes through the eastern gate, and it was from Psalm 118, verse 25. And that word hallel, translated in English, is Hosanna, right? Save us. Well, if you go up in Psalm 118, just three verses, 
from the 25th verse to the 22nd verse, you find something else very interesting there that gives you a glimpse behind the curtain. So go there with me right now. Psalm 118. Thousand years before Jesus is born, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Interesting. Because the builders wouldn't want to reject the cornerstone. That would be the best stone. But the builders rejected it, and yet it became the cornerstone. And then it says, the Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Hmm. When you go back behind to, to this side of the curtain, when Jesus went to Jerusalem, he goes to the temple after he rides through the eastern gate, right? And then he refers to that very verse. You read it in Luke chapter 20, verses 17 to 19. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Well, then what is the meaning of, which is, of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Huh. Just before he quotes that verse, he tells a story. He tells a parable. It's called the parable of the tenants. So it would be like a tenant farmer, okay? So we're, and we're talking about a vineyard in the story that Jesus tells. And he says there's a, an owner of a vineyard who goes off to a far country and he has tenants running his vineyard for him. And then he wants to see how they're doing, how it's progressing. So he sends people back to give him a message. But these tenants won't won't tell them anything sends more back and this time the tenants mistreat them and they aren't able to give a report to the owner and so the owner thinks to himself i'll send my son they'll respect my son i'll send him back to them and then i'll get the message or the report that i want but the tenants thought you know what we need to do we need to kill the son and then maybe we'll end up with the property so when the son comes to get the report, the tenants kill the son of the owner thinking that that's going to somehow give them access to the property. And the question is, well, what will that owner do when he comes back? Jesus tells that story and then he quotes Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And anything that hits it will be shattered and anything it falls upon will be crushed. <coughs> Luke records that the religious leaders, they know exactly what Jesus is saying to them. And it actually describes their reaction because as soon as they hear what Jesus says, they go, we're going to kill that guy. Because Jesus is accusing them of being the, the, the builders that rejected the cornerstone. He's calling himself the son of the owner, or the son of God. And they have had enough of that. You notice he also talks about how the stone, will, uh, anything that hits it will be shattered, and anything that it lands on will be crushed. He's actually referring to the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament, about 550 B.C., and this is what that prophet said. Uh, he was in, uh, this was a dream that he interpreted while you were watching, a rock was cut out. A rock was cut out. Not by human hands. 
Hold on to that. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay. Now this statue has, is made of different materials representing all the empires of the world, all the great empires of the world, of iron and clay, and smashed them. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer, which means they blew away. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. As a prophecy about this cornerstone, the stone the builders rejected, an unhewn stone, a stone from heaven and not from earth, not by human hands or by human will, but by God's will, that would shatter all the great kingdoms of the world and then fill the earth. In Zechariah 10.4, it actually said where this stone would come from. From Judah will come the cornerstone. From him the tent peg. From him the battle bow. From him every ruler. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. And those religious leaders were very aware of who he was and what he was saying. Jesus is saying, I know that I'm going to be rejected. But identifies himself. As the cornerstone. Do you know the temple that Jesus was in had a holy place and a holy of holies? You may remember Clayton talking about that. And in the holy of holies, during that time of the temple, there was no Ark of the Covenant. At that time, there was only one thing in there, and that was called the foundation stone. Jesus used the idea or the illustration of a foundation stone in teaching before. Like, you can remember like the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus concluded that. His big ending in that sermon was that there were two houses. One was built on sand. The other one was built on the rock. And a storm came and blew against those houses. And the one on sand fell with a mighty crash. But the one that was founded on the rock could withstand all the storms and all the wind and all the rain. Because it was on a firm foundation. In Matthew 16, Jesus said that on this rock, I will build my church. And what he said about that foundation is that it will withstand all that hell can throw at it. Talking about us. So I get the whole illustration, the whole analogy of a stone and a cornerstone. But let's dive into one aspect of this, and that is, why did Jesus need to be rejected? Why did he have to be the cornerstone that was a rejected stone? Why couldn't these highly religious, well-schooled leaders not see and accept what was so patently obvious? Remember why Jesus came in the first place. Jesus came to pay a debt of sin that he didn't know but you did and I did, right? That's what he came for. So he was rejected so that I would not be rejected. He was despised so that I would not be despised. He was wounded and bruised and ultimately killed so that I wouldn't be. But after Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven and then he sends the Holy Spirit a gospel plan had been fully provided and salvation 
that which was promised in that song, the Hallel and Hosanna, save us, Lord, could be provided. Right after that, Peter and John are healing a lame man in the temple, and they get in trouble and arrested because they healed a lame man, and guess what the the scriptural subject was of their defense? It's in Acts chapter 4. It says this in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Listen, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected. You builders. Not the builders. You builders rejected. Which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind. By which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John. Realized they were unschooled ordinary men. <coughs> they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That was the number one reason why Jesus came. So he would be rejected so you wouldn't be. But there was a second reason. The second reason is that the gospel would go to the whole world. The gospel wouldn't be a story. It wouldn't be a salvation just for the people of Israel, but it'd be for everyone. Everyone. The rejection of Jesus uh, 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 as the Messiah by the Jews opened up a door, a doorway that God intended to open for all the Gentiles, all the non-Jewish world. But it did so without shutting the door to the Jewish world. It opened the door to make salvation available to who? Everyone. The Apostle Paul devotes an entire chapter in the book of Romans to this very truth. Romans chapter 11. Finally, the Hebrew writer takes us all the way back to Abraham, 2000 B.C. To help us understand this even deeper behind that curtain. Look what it says in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went. Even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Check this out. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham rejected the foundations of the earth for the foundations of heaven. Even though he didn't understand what was coming. Today, you and I, we're all living on the other side of the curtain, right? And there are earthly foundations all around us. And a lot of those foundations you had a part in building. As a matter of fact, a lot of those foundations are really, really important to you. But I have to tell you, everything that sits on an earthly foundation has the potential to be an idol. And many of them are. 
And I think about the things that mankind has created over the years. The, the buildings, the structures that they have, they've built. How many of you ever heard of the seven ancient wonders of the world? They're all buildings. These ancient wonders of the world. I want you to think about how well they're doing. First one would be the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. It's one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, and yet nobody knows where they were or even if they actually existed. Not only are, are there no ruins of it, there's been, never been any foundations found of it. They're just gone. How about the Temple of Diana or Artemis in Ephesus? One of the great uh, wonders of the world, this humongous temple... It now, its location is now in a swamp. And there's nothing left of it except for a broken pillar that they've raised up to show you where it actually used to be. The Colossus of Rhodes was an ancient wonder of the world. It was a sculpture made of bronze of a huge uh, hum, human-type person, like a, like a god, who had one foot on the land and one foot on an island. Was, and, and over his head was like this. His hand was over his head and they built a fire up here. It acted as a lighthouse. And he was so big that ancient ships were able to sail between his legs. But an earthquake took care of the Colossus of Rhodes and he fell. And when he did, all the bronze was pillaged by the local people. And today, it exists no more. The lighthouse of Alexandria was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, but you can't find it today. You can find some pieces of it, but they are under the water of the Mediterranean Sea. The statue of Zeus at Olympia was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world at the base of Mount Olympus, and now it is a ruin also underwater. The mausoleum of Halicarnassus, Lasted longer than the rest, but an earthquake took care of it about 600 years ago. The only ancient wonder of the world that you can still visit, that still exists, is the Great Pyramid of Giza. And it's a tomb, which is kind of a testimony, isn't it, of what it actually is. And if that's what's happened to the greatest structures of the world... How do you think your building is going to do? Whatever you're investing in to build, how do you think it's going to last over the years? And what are you rejecting in your life in order to invest in those things? Now, I want to share with you, you know, we're going to have this series that's coming called There Has to Be a Place. But here's what I want to tell you. I know a place. I know a place where buildings last forever. I, I know a place where time doesn't matter. I know a place where hope never fades. I know a place where people never die. I know a place where sickness is eliminated. I know a place where sorrow is swallowed up. I, I know a place where light is never extinguished. I know a place where joy overflows. I know a place where reunions are rich. I know a place where life is abundant. I know a place where faith has been replaced with sight. I know a place where angels dwell, where 
praise fills the air where sin has no place. And ultimately, I know a place where I belong. And you know a place where you belong. And Abraham knew a place where he belonged. The writer of Psalms knew a place where he belonged. Zechariah knew a place where he belonged. Peter and John knew a place where they belonged. We belong. I know a place where Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. I know a place prepared for me by the master builder. I know a place prepared for me by the foundation layer. I know a place that has a living cornerstone. I know a place that is inhabited by my Savior, my Lord, my King, my Father, and my friend. I wonder, do you know that place? We're moving to a time of decision. So when Allison and I first moved to Quincy, we picked a house on 23rd Street. Kind of sort of barely in the historic district. Because the neighborhood's just incredible, right? And we we thought about walking and stuff and and how that nice that would be. And and we lived there for 10 years. And uh, one of the things that was kind of lacking in that house was the garage. It had a really ugly garage. It it, it had uh, stucco on the garage and the stucco was cracked and the doors didn't open right and the and the door didn't go up right and that just like it was just it was just awful and i thought you know what i can handle this i can i can fix this i can make this right i can do this and so <clears throat> i took a sledgehammer and started taking off all that stucco got all the stucco off of that thing and i went and bought some uh vinyl siding cuz that was like you know that solves every problem right and I put new vinyl siding on it, you know, and trimmed all that. It's like, and, and it looked so great. And then, you know, it, was, it looked nice for maybe like nine months. And then, like the siding at the bottom started to buckle. Like, come out. And the doors around, where the, I'd sided around the doors, they, they didn't want to open. And, and the, and the, uh, the, the garage door was all messed up and like part of it was open and part of it was shut. And what I realized was the foundation had cracked so bad that it was actually sinking. And no matter how I might want to try it, the foundation was bad. And because the foundation was bad, the whole building was bad. And I have to tell you how foolish I felt as I tore off my nine-month-old siding And as they brought in big machinery, backhoes, and as that entire garage was torn down, and then they had to go down into the the concrete pad, which had no foundation, by the way, 
It was just a pad of concrete. And tear that all up and bring in trucks and haul it all away until there was nothing left there but just dirt on the ground. And then they started, built a whole new foundation, poured a new pad, built a new structure, and sited it all over again. Yeah, I was foolish. And I felt even more foolish when I got the bill. And I thought about that money that I'd spent on the siding, how it could have gone towards that bigger bill. And I wonder how many of you are just like me. You know what I mean? I mean, here's your life. And you're building on your foundation. You're building on your foundations. And, and, and how many times have you put a fresh coat of paint on it? Or you put some siding on it and you go, there, that, good, oh, yes. Only to find out that it disappoints you. I want to tell you the truth today. That on your best day and your best effort, it's still not going to work. And if you trust in Jesus before he ever constructs anything in your life, guess what he's going to do? He's going to deconstruct it. And we don't like that. We don't like deconstruction because it makes us feel foolish and it makes us feel like we've wasted our time and we've wasted our opportunities and we've wasted our relationships and we've wasted our past. We've wasted our money. And we see all the big machinery he brings in and we're like, oh no. And the mess. But he uncovers all of the stuff that wasn't ever right. He hauls it away. And then he begins to construct something brand new in your life. But there's one difference in my analogy. My garage on 23rd Street, I got the bill. But when he does this in my life, he gets the bill. He already got the bill. There are those of you here today that have never come into an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want you to hear this good news. He has already paid the bill. You just need to accept the fact that he paid it for you. Now there's going to be someone standing right over here by the baptistry that would love to talk to you about what those next steps are to accept that into your life. And don't, don't have any illusions. It's, it's not easy and it can be embarrassing because that deconstruction has to happen. But trust Him. Because what God builds in your life withstands the test of time. There will come a day when all of these locations that the crossing has will all fall to dust. But the people that were changed in them will live on for eternity in the glory of heaven. And you can be one of those people. So go over and talk to the person that's standing over there today if you've never made that decision for Christ. And if you have, take stock of your life right now. Where are the places where you're trusting in the things of this world?
You don't have to wait for next week or the week after that to start a New Year's resolution. Be resolved. Don't waste another minute. Don't waste another moment. Be resolved. Come up here, get down on your knees and say, Lord, here's this, here's that. If Abraham was content to live the way he lived, let me live in your kingdom in such a way that I look forward to a kingdom with foundations and to a king who will never be off his throne. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. In Jesus' name, Heavenly Father, please take advantage of this moment. Make it a moment of clarity. With your angels stationed all around this building, I pray that we will know the truth that you are here with us and that you won't leave us or forsake us and that you love us enough to die for us. Help us then to live for you. Even if that first step is right now. In Jesus' name.